Thank you to our missionaries, our local missionaries for sharing. Uh, before we jump in this morning, just want to just highlight a couple things regarding that. Um, as, as Dave mentioned, 10% of the, uh, the money uh, that is given uh, to the ministries at SunWest uh, goes uh, to support uh, missionaries, goes outside of the walls of SunWest, and uh, as part of our, uh, we pay for, uh, or we support missionaries through those funds. And there's a limit to those uh, to how that money gets dispersed, right? We have policies for that kind of thing. Um, and so as a church, our heart is to see our local mini- uh, missionaries among us uh, thrive. Um, but as a, uh, from a budgetary standpoint, uh, obviously we don't hold all the weight of that. And so I would just encourage you as, uh, as brothers and sisters uh, to consider what it might look like to partner with any one of our local missionaries. Uh, in our e-news this past week, we put uh, links to each of those missionaries, uh, to websites, to newsletters, uh, and so I'd encourage you, uh, if you're not signed up for e-news, to do that, uh, but if you uh, conveniently put that e-news in that spam folder uh, to go back and open it, uh, and you can sign up and stay in the loop with our missionaries and what's going on, and perhaps the Lord's laying on your heart one of these missionaries to come alongside them in, a, in an intentional way uh, to support financially or in prayer as well. Um, it, would, it would be great to see them uh, all thriving uh, and, and provided for, and I think uh, God's called us as a community in a u- unique way uh, to uh, work alongside of them uh, as they are uh, part of us. Okay, so Shalom, the Shalom Project. We are continuing with it. We're looking at Shalom with others. It was uh, in the mid-1980s. There was a little boy in southern Manitoba uh, who went with his mom to a grocery store, uh, and uh, the name of that grocery store was Clarney Meats, uh, really a creative name. Uh, and so we went to the Clarney Meats grocery store, and that little boy uh, loved Double Bubble. You guys remember Double Bubble? I know they still exist out there. Uh, I haven't had one in years, uh, but Double Bubbles, uh, for me, I mean, this for this boy in the 1980s was like, it was just the, the, the greatest thing. Uh, the, the gum was okay. You, you, you put the gum in your mouth and the flavor lasted for 10 seconds, but they were a glorious 10 seconds. Uh, but the cartoons, can I get an amen on the cartoons? The cartoons in the double bubbles, that's what it's all about. So it, it's like a cartoon with a little treat uh, for five cents, and it was amazing. Uh, the problem with said boy in the 1980s uh, is that he didn't even have five cents. I mean, I, I, he had no job. Uh, he had no way of making income. He was completely dependent on the generosity of his mother and father to provide him with said bubble gubble, double bubble, or gubble bubble. Uh, so they go into Clarny Meat Store, and it's kind of like this this moment where the it's like the double bubble, you know, container where they're all sitting. It's just like highlighted. Oh, you could hear the angels singing. And mom went to the back of the store to get meat from Clarny Meats. Uh, and little boy looks around. Doesn't see anyone looking. Puts his hand in the container and just takes one. Uh, puts it in his mouth. Puts the cartoon in his pocket. Mom and boy leave the store. Uh, mom looks down at boy and sees him chewing. Mom says, what's in your mouth? What's in your mouth? Spit it out. Spit it out. She sees that it was gum. It was double bubble. She says, where'd you get that from? I said, well, I took it from the store. She said, you stole it? And I had to confess, yes, I stole it. And then she, I mean, boy stole it. And then they, she takes... She takes Boy into the store to apologize for stealing uh, the double bubble. You know, it was a good learning experience for that boy. Uh, and mom said something to the effect of, you should know better than that. And we should all know better than that. There's something about stealing uh, that we know inherently is not right. It, it's inherently uh, goes against the grain of what it means to be human. Uh, and why is that? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the series, we, we talked about what it means to be created in the image of God. 
We can imagine things that don't exist. We can create things. God created us to create. And uh, in Uruguay, says, uh, bees create hives, ants create colonies, beavers create dams, and humans create the future. That's one of uh, the genius things about being a human being is that we have the capacity to create the future. And so we spend a lot of time talking about that. But we were created to create. The opposite of creating is actually stealing. The opposite of creating is stealing. The opposite of creating is to actually to take something that somebody else creates, to, to benefit from somebody else's labor, from somebody else's work, to take advantage of somebody else at their expense for your own benefit. That's the opposite, actually, of what it means to be a human being. So that boy in the 1980s, he did learn a lesson, but he didn't learn it fully. He would continue to not steal, per se, but cheat his way through life. And uh, when that boy grew up to be a young adult going to college, he went to a Bible college to learn about God and the justice of God and the forgiveness of God. And, um, and you learned about these things by reading books, by listening to professors. Um, and, but that boy, he only went to college to play basketball, really, um, and to be with his friends. So school was kind of something they just had to do. You had to get a certain GPA to, to play on the team. And so uh, a significant part of the mark actually came from doing the readings. You had to do so many readings, uh, so many books. And for every book you read you, uh, and every part that you were supposed to read, you actually had to, there was a green slip, a reading slip. You had to sign your name. I promise that I read said part. There was no homework involved. It was like an honor system. I'm like, Bible school? This is amazing. Uh, don't judge me right now. Uh, and so for the first year, I got, I mean, I got pretty good marks, good enough to, to stay, in, in, stay in on the basketball team, and I never read a single book. I never read a single book. I just wrote my name on that. I mean, this is the easiest mark I've ever gotten. Wrote my name, handed it in, wrote my name, handed it in. And then I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit by year two, and I started to change that practice. Uh, but that is a form of stealing as well, where we are taking credit for something we didn't do, where we are finding a shortcut uh, to get something that we want, where we're being dishonest and untruthful, and it, it actually betrays what God is calling us to as his image bearers. I mean, those are kind of minor, maybe cheating examples, um, but we do this kind of thing all the time. We take advantage of others. We take credit for things. Uh, we take the path of least resistance. But when we look at the call of God on our lives as followers of Jesus, he actually calls us to a higher standard of living. He actually calls us to be truly human, to, re, to represent him, to re-image him in the world. And so the way that God is, who his character is, the way that he functions, the way that he acts, we're actually supposed to imitate that. And this has huge implications. So in Ephesians 4, uh, it says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. This is, this is good advice. So if you're here and you're stealing, stop it. Um, Steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they, that they may have something to share with those in need. So this is generally good advice. Don't steal. Um, and it's easy to think about these things materially, and we'll, we'll start by thinking about them materially. Um, but Ephesians, the major theme in Ephesians is actually on identity and who you are and what that impl- the implications of who you are and how, the, and how that means that you live. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, right before the section, it says, live up to the calling that you have received. Don't settle to be less than God's called you to be. Live up to the standard. Be the image of God in the world. And so if we look at the principles of Ephesians 4, uh, there's three principles that we see here. Steal no longer. That's step one. Stop stealing. Step two, work doing something useful with your own hands. And step three, share with others in need. So stealing, uh, we could just refer to that as being a taker. Stop being a taker. Stealing is taking something that isn't yours. You didn't create it. You didn't work for it. You don't have the right to it. Somebody else has the right to it, and you are taking it from them. That's stealing. That's taking. So Paul's saying, steal no longer. Number two, we could just classify as being a getter. 
A getter is someone who has worked for what they got. They were, they've been compensated for the work. They created or built something so that they could enjoy it. They have the right to it. What they own, they earned. The income they, they get, they've worked for. So stop stealing. Stop just being a taker and take it a step further. Be a getter. But Paul takes it a step further and he says, don't just stop at being a getter. Be a giver. The giver is one who has worked for something, yes. They've been compensated, yes. But instead of keeping it to themselves, they give it away. Getting and giving aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, giving away is uh, getting as part, inherently a part of giving away, that you can't give what you don't have. You need to receive before you give. But Paul is saying the end point in the maturity of the follower of Jesus is not just to get, it's actually a step further to give. And so taker, getter, giver, there's a progression of maturity as we become God's image bearers in this world. The hope for God isn't that we just take, isn't that we steal. The hope for God isn't that we just get and that we cling to our rights of what I deserve and what I worked for. God's hope for us is that we would actually re-image him in the world and be generous givers. And why is this? Because we're called to re-image God. We're actually called to represent him, and God is the one who creates. God created out of nothing. He's the one who gives. He's the generous one. God is the ultimate giver. Now, we're going to come back to this, this in a second, but, but this principle, what I call a kingdom principle, um, it's easy to think about it materially, economically, financially, uh, but it's actually a principle that goes beyond that to relationally, spiritually, uh, what it means to re-image God in the world. So we go back to the beginning of the garden, Genesis 1 to 3. We've talked a lot about that up until this point in the series, about how that God created he put us in creation to be in right relationship with him, with others, with herself, our identity, and the world. Everything was as it was intended to be, uh, but then humanity decided to step away from God and say, I'm going to do this my own way. I'm going to be the center of my own world. There was a hierarchy in creation where we served God and we oversaw creation. We said, I'm not going to serve God anymore. I'm going to do it my own way. And when that happened, the shalom, the right relationship with uh, with others, with God, with self, with the world, actually was, was broken. And so very quickly, you see the implications of that decision as Scripture unfolds. And we've looked at Adam and Eve and the serpent in the last series. Uh, and then in, in Genesis chapter 4, we see that, uh, that Adam and Eve had some kids. Uh, they had a couple of brothers. Uh, and in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, we see that these brothers had conflict. I mean, uh, not a lot has changed in the last few thousand years. Siblings have conflict. Uh, and, and so Cain actually kills his brother. And the Lord said, uh, this is in verse 10 in chapter 4, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops. So you can see the implications of that broken relationships in the world as well. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and will be hit, I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. When the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God puts a mark on Cain so that nobody will hurt him. The intention of this is to limit the progression and multiplication of evil and violence. The intention of this is to to stop the stealing, to stop the taking, to stop robbing life from other people. And so God puts a limit in hopes that this would end the cycle of violence. But we see a few generations later, we, we run into a, uh, a character named Lamech in the line of Cain. Cain had you know, a few generations, and then we come across this very, very brief story, which is a significant story, actually, 
Uh, and then it says that Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, and Lamech 77 times, or seven times 70, depending how you read it. So Lamech takes this a step further. God actually tries to limit violence and, and, and puts that threat on Cain. If anybody harms Cain, then, then they will, justice will be served. God limits it. But Lamech actually takes a step further and says, I'm not just going to serve justice. I'm going to uh, find vengeance. We see the, that retributive justice doesn't stop violence. It perpetuates it. And so hurt people hurt people. I mean, this is true in the beginning of the biblical story. It's true in our lives today. And so God recognizes this. Our human propensity to steal, to take, our human propensity actually to, uh, to resort to violence, to move beyond justice, to seek vengeance. And the problem is, partly when we think that we're getting justice, it's justice according to whom? And it's very easy to move from justice into vengeance, and you end up taking more than you should have. And so God, uh, in the same way he tried to limit the violence of Cain, he actually puts things in place to limit the violence of his people that we refer to as the law. The law existed to teach the Israelites how to live. There's threats in the law. There's consequences. If you live outside of these boundaries, it's not going to go well for you. There's going to be punishments. There's a, there's a type of law that's referred to as the tax lalionis, uh, which is really summed up in an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that scripture passage. And the whole idea behind this type of law is that uh, you would think twice before taking someone's eye because that meant that they had the right to take your eye. You would think twice before taking someone's tooth. This is bad news for dentists. Because uh, they would have the right to take your tooth. So this is... Limit, this is justice intended to limit the cycle of violence. This was an important scope in what God was doing in terms of limiting the scope of evil and violence. Um, uh, but it wasn't the end goal. It wasn't the end point. And we're going to see this again. Let's go back to the taker, getter, giver. Uh, and, and I didn't come up with this. Miroslav Volf, who's written a lot on, uh, on forgiveness and a lot on this topic. Uh, there's a few great books. Um, and there's, there's one... Uh, that this is coming out of called Free of Charge. I would encourage you to, to read it. Um, but, but he's saying that these principles of taker, getter, giver have a relational and spiritual implication as well. And it's easy to see these things when we think financially, materially, as I said. Uh, but when we move to relationships, uh, we can see the direct parallel between this, this progression. A taker... It's similar to someone seeking vengeance, taking life, stealing, killing, raping, coercing, forcing people into labor, slavery, torture. These extreme acts of violence are a form of taking that which isn't yours, that which you have no right to. Even if you've been hurt, it's, it's actually responding and hurt and going a step further and hurting someone else beyond beyond the way that they've hurt you. And most of us understand that this is probably not the best place to live in. This is not the place where we as humans thrive. Our society would fall apart very, very quickly, and so would our families and relationships. And we understand that intuitively, but we, we know that this does, this does happen, that there's takers, there's people seeking vengeance. And so God puts laws in place, and we know that God is a just God, that God is holy, that there's a right way to live, and he's called us to live in a certain way. Uh, and being a getter, when we think materially, we could actually draw a direct correlation to, uh, to thinking about justice. When we think of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and the Old Testament law, its emphasis was on justice. And it's interesting because our culture wants to live in this space, we want to live in a space of getters, of rights, of you work for what you get, enjoy what you get, don't take what's not yours. It's kind of the law of the land. 
But the problem is that justice according to who? And when we talk about justice, we often talk, we often talk about from our perspective, not from God's perspective. We talk about justice from a perspective that, that actually benefits me. When we think of ca- cancel culture that's going on in our world right now, it's, this, is, this is the second tier getting gone wrong. In the name of justice, we cancel people. We wipe them out. We, we blaspheme them. We, we, we don't support them. We, uh, we don't give them a second chance. Because something that they did was so deserving of never getting a second chance. And the problem is, and you can see it happening very, very clearly, uh, is that over time, who is left that doesn't get canceled? And this was the reality that the people of God found themselves in because they embraced God's law, they loved God's law, they tried to follow it, uh, and they were very quick to point out the enemies and everybody else that should be canceled. But over time, they realized that God was holding them to the same standards as they were holding everybody else to. And the consequences in the law, they actually experienced. The punishments in the law, they experienced. And the story of God's people is one of them realizing, we love this God of justice, but we recognize that we're not exempt from justice. And they're looking around like, well, who else? Who who can actually be right enough to be right with God? Who can be just enough to live out God's laws? And the answer, historically is no one. In fact, Paul himself says this. He, he says in Romans 3.20 that, therefore, no one will be de- declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. God knew that we couldn't handle his justice from the very, very beginning. God knew that the standard he called us to because of sin, we weren't able to live to. God knew that we would struggle to re-image him in the world, even though he created us to do so. So why did he give us the law? Why did he give us these morality and justice? And so if if he knew that we wouldn't be able to follow it, well, the answer is in the question. He gave us the law because he knew we wouldn't be able to follow it. And in following it, we would recognize that the intention was to expose our need for mercy, our need for God, our need for grace. So God moves people from vengeance to justice, but that wasn't his end goal. The justice point in the biblical story was actually just to help humanity to become aware that they were unjust and that there was nobody exempt and that the more you try to live under the rule of the law, the more the law actually condemns you. And so if we look at the parallel to moving from a taker to a getter to a giver, we see that forgiveness is actually the point where this all kind of collides. If we orient our lives around justice, uh, we're going to actually have a problem. And this is what we see in the Bible. If we orient our lives around justice, at some point we are going to either live under the consequences of that or we're going to have to receive forgiveness and grace ourselves. So we looked at Genesis 1 to 3, Genesis 4, and now we move to the, the New Testament and Jesus, who is the perfect image bearer of God, who represents God to us, who is God with flesh on, starts to show us the posture and the heartbeat of God and how it is that we ought to live. And so the followers of Jesus, they're, 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 they're observing him, they're watching him, they're listening to him, and this, this is creating all sorts of questions. And so in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching on conflict, he's teaching on uh, what happens when you've been wronged, when people have sinned and it's impacted you negatively and it's impacted the world, when people have broken shalom? How do you begin to deal with it? So Peter asks a really good question because Jesus leads them to this place of the importance of forgiveness, the importance of grace. If you don't extend grace to people, the world stops spinning because everybody needs grace, including you and me. And so this causes Peter to ask this question. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? I mean, it's a great question. Lord, what's the limit of forgiveness? 
Um, I recognize that I need forgiveness, you know, but I'm trying to do things right. If, if someone is not interested in doing things the way you want them to do them and they keep breaking your law and hurting me and hurting others, how many times do I have to give to, how many times do I have to forgive them? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times or seven times 70, depending on how you read it. And what we see the exchange of Peter and Jesus doing here is echoing Genesis chapter 4. Peter's question occurs on the heels of Jesus' rules of conflict. And Jesus and Peter are having this kind of code in reflection of Cain and Abel and Lamech. And what does this mean? Well, if you read this passage and you think, well, Jesus' point is uh, that you 490 times is the limit of your forgiveness. And you're walking around, you know, you got everybody's name in your phone, and you're keeping a tally. Oh, Pastor Dave's at 380. Um, I, only got, I only got 110 left. And then he's cut. If, if that's your understanding of what Jesus is saying, you're actually completely missing the point. What's, what's he saying? Well, he's echoing what happened in Genesis 4. He's saying that vengeance actually has a multiplying effect. It changes the world. Violence changes the world. Unforgiveness changes the world. Bitterness changes the world. The people that are just taking, it just goes and goes and goes and goes. The people that require justice even, there's no actually end to that because everybody is actually unjust. And so I am starting something new. I'm starting a different kind of multiplying effect. I'm going to change the world to actually reflect the world I wanted to create in the very beginning, this world of shalom. But we can't get to it through evil. We can't get to it for violence. We can't get to it through taking and stealing. We actually can't even get to it through justice. The only way that that world actually comes about is through the multiplying effect of forgiveness. There's no end to the amount that you should forgive somebody. Well, why is that? Well, the why, Jesus answers in the next parable. And I won't read the whole parable now, but in summary, Jesus says, this is, this is why, Peter. Uh, there was a servant who owed a lot of money to his master. Uh, and, and in fact, the amount that the, the servant owed to his master uh, in today's standards would have been around $12 billion dollars. So an unpayable amount of debt. And he goes to his master and he begs and he begs and he begs, forgive me, forgive me, forgive my debts, forgive my debts. And so the, the master says, okay, I'll, I'll forgive your debts. And then he walks away from the master and there's someone who owed him the equivalent of $23,000 in today's money standard. And he says, he finds the guy that owed him money and is like, you owe me money. So he's forgiven $12 billion and 23000 is no small amount, but in comparison to the amount that he owed the master, it's, it's really insignificant. And he demanded that the man that owed him 23000 pay the debt that he owed, and the end of the story ends with the master actually throwing uh, the this, this servant that he originally forgave into prison because of the debt that he owed. And so what is Jesus saying in this parable? He's saying, if you understand the extent of God's forgiveness for you, it would be absurd to go and demand justice to somebody else to you. It, it, it doesn't actually compute. See, the master, is, he's intending to have this, this multiplying forgiveness that would transform your heart and the world, and you actually take that and you abuse it and now go demand justice from somebody else, and it stops the whole system. It stops the whole multiplying effect. And in a way, what Jesus is saying in this parable is uh, you get to set the rules. God offers you forgiveness. Now, if you want to receive it, great, but that has implications for how you treat others. If you don't want to receive it, great, but recognize that the, to the degree that you hold others accountable, you too will be held, held accountable. So Jesus is saying, you set the rules. How do you want God's justice to actually be weighted out in your life? 
So it, it's, a, it's a sobering parable. Uh, and, and, and what it's getting to is what we see throughout Scripture. And I had, I had so many Scripture references for this one point. I deleted a whole bunch of them, but here's a couple. Second uh, Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? I mean, who loves presents here? Anybody? Anybody want this? Nobody? Yeah, you think there's a catch here. No, I'm not, I'm not tricking you. Uh, there's actually nothing. I hate to break to you. There's nothing in it. Uh, d- d- disappointing. Uh, but we all love presents. We all love receiving something. Uh, Paul is saying that everything you and I have, we received. It was a gift. God gave us everything as a gift. And I love getting gifts. I can think back to my life about the favorite gifts, gifts I got. I remember in junior high, I got Street Fighter II on my Sega Genesis and I was so pumped about it. Nobody? No, no. Street Fighter. I'm alone in Street Fighter 2. I remember when I was eight years old, my parents surprised me with, the, with the, my very first guitar. And it was life-changing and amazing. I love receiving gifts. Here's, here, here's what happens, though, is that over time, we stop viewing the things in our life as a gift. We start to believe the lie that what we have, we've earned. We start to think like getters. We start to think like everything I have is my right. I remember one time my parents got me a stereo for Christmas. And I was so pumped about the stereo. And then I also saw that they bought themselves a stereo for Christmas. And it was way better than my stereo. And I remember just being ticked, and I remember yelling at them and being mad at them. And why did I do that? Why did I think I had a right to a certain something at their expense? What they gave me was a gift. I didn't even receive it as a gift. The Bible says that everything we have, everything we've ever been given is a gift. And if we believe that, if we truly believe that, it transforms the way that we live and the way that we treat others. To the degree that we think that we've earned everything we have is the degree that we will start to exploit our relationship with others, is the degree that we will not be able to forgive others. But if we truly believe that everything's a gift, it changes everything. Uh, Ephesians, Paul also says here, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. What is it? It's a gift of God. You're very relationship with God, your very salvation. You did, not receive, you did not receive it because you earned it. You actually received it because of God's generosity, because he's a generous God. He loves to give good gifts, not by works so that no one can boast. For we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So how does the justice of God work with the grace of God? How can God both be just and gracious? Well, He can because of the cross. You look at Jesus hanging on the cross. This is where the justice of God and the grace of God collide. Jesus actually shows us, demonstrates that forgiveness is available to us, but also shows us that God has not gone back on his heart of justice. That he's willing to pay and absorb the sin of the world himself. Now, as you know, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. I know I quote him probably too much. You guys are thinking, uh, C.S. Lewis again. Uh, but he's just so much smarter than me. Uh, and we're going to have a story time with Pastor Matt here. Uh, story time. And this, uh, this story is chapter four in one of my favorite books, The Great Divorce. And just to give you um, a little bit of a a snapshot. Uh, the Great Divorce is its analogy. It's a meta, it's a metaphorical story, uh, and it's it's talking about people that are living in heaven and people that are living in hell. Uh, and there's a bus that actually takes the people that are living in hell to heaven to check it out. Uh, and there's lots of imagery going on in the story. The people that are living in heaven are solid people. Uh, they can stand on things. 
they, they look solid. The people that are coming from hell are actually, they're ghostly figures. You can kind of see through them. They're not solid. When they touch solid things, it's hurtful and it's painful. Um, and in the beginning of the great divorce, uh, the picture that C.S. Lewis paints of hell is, is a place where they can have anything they want anytime they want it. And the result of that is that people are living 100 miles apart and it's still too close. They're living 100 miles apart because they move in next to somebody and then there's immediately a conflict and they decide, I can't live close to this person anymore. I want to live over there. And so they go over there. I'm going to live in this house. I'm going to live in this house. And people get what they want and they realize they're more and more and more isolated because they're more and more convinced of their own rightness. And so this is kind of the backdrop of this chapter so you got solid people, you got these ghostly people, uh, and the narrator is, he's walking around, he came from hell, and he's walking around, and he's just observing the conversations that are happening uh, between the solid folks and the ghostly folks. Uh, and so here we are in chapter 4. As the solid people came nearer still, I noticed that they were moving with order and determination as though each of them had marked this man in our shadowy company. There are going to be affecting scenes, I said to myself. Perhaps I would not be right to look on. With that, I sidled away on some vague pretext of doing a little exploring. I grove a huge cedars to my right, seemed attractive, and I entered it. Walking proved difficult, right, because he's ghostly. The grass, hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet, made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock, and I suffered pains like those of the mermaid in Hans Anderson. A bird ran across in front of me, and I envied it. It belonged to that country and was real as the grass. It could bend the stalks and spatter itself with the dew. Almost at once, I was followed by what I have called the big man to speak, more accurately, the big ghost. He, in his turn, was followed by one of the bright people. Don't you know me, he shouted to the ghost, and I found it impossible not to turn and attend the face of the solid spirit. He was one of those that wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund. I'm not sure what that word means. Um, So established in its youthfulness. This was written a long time ago. Uh, Well, I'm damned, said the ghost. I wouldn't have believed it. It's a fair knockout. Isn't it right, Len, you know? What about poor Jack, eh? You look pretty pleased with yourself, but what I say is, what about poor Jack? He is here, the other said the other. You will meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. Of course I did. It's all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean? But what about the poor chap himself laying cold and dead? But he isn't. I've told you. You will meet him soon. He sent you his love. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for. As pleased as punch, you, a bloody murderer, while I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a a pigsty all these years. That is a little hard to understand at first, but it's all over now. You will be pleased about it presently. Till then, there is no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean it. I do not look at myself. I've given up myself. I had to. You know, after the murder, that was what it did for me, and and that was how everything began. Personally, personally said the big ghost with an emphasis which contradicted the ordinary meaning of the word. Personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. Very likely, we soon shall be, said the other, if you'll stop talking or stop thinking about it. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping its chest, but it made the slap made no noise. I'd gone straight my whole life. I don't say I was a relig- religious man, and I don't say I had no faults far from it, but I'd done my best all my life. See? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it, and if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See? That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. It would be, it would be much, much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. See? I'm not asking for anything but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me. And I'm only a poor man, but I got to have my rights, same as you. See? Oh, no. It's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get get yours either. You'll get something far better 
never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best and I never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do. At once. Ask for bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking and nothing can be bought. That may do very well for you, dare I say. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat with you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. If I had my rights, I'd been, I've been here long ago, and you can tell them I said so. The other shook his head. You can never do it like that, he said. Your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on our grass that way. You'd be tired out before we got to the mountains, and it isn't exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What isn't true, asked the ghost sulkily. You weren't a decent man, and you didn't do your best. We, none of us here, and we, none of us did. Lord bless you, it doesn't matter. There is no need for us to go into it all now. You, gasped ghost, you have the face to tell me I wasn't a decent chap. Of course. Must I go into all that? I will tell you one thing to begin with. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it. But I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. I used to lie awake at nights thinking what I'd do to you if I ever got the chance. That is why I've been sent to you now, to ask your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one and longer if it pleases you. I was the worst, but all the men who worked under you felt the same. You made it hard for us. You know. And you made it hard for your wife, too, and for your children. You mind your own business, young man, said the ghost. None of your lips, see? Because I'm not taking any impudence from you about my private affairs. There are no private affairs, said the other. And I'll tell you another thing, said the ghost. You can clear off, see? You're not wanted. I may be only a poor man, but I'm not making pals with a murderer, let alone taking lessons from him. Make it hard for you and your like, did I? If I had... You back where I'd show you what, what work is. Come and show me now, said the other with laughter in his voice. It will be joy going to the mountains, but there will be plenty of work. You don't suppose I'd go with you. Don't refuse. You will never get there alone, and I am the one who was sent to you. So that's the trick, is it? Shouted the ghost, outwardly bitter. And yet I thought there was a kind of triumph in his voice. It had been entreated. It could make a refusal, and this seemed to, to it a, a kind of advantage. I thought there'd be some damn nonsense. It's all a clique, all a bloody clique. Tell them I'm not coming, see? I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? Not going sniveling along the charity tied onto your apron strings. If they're too fine to have me without you, I'll go home. It was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten. That's what it'll do. That's what I'll do, it repeated. I'll go home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. In the end, still grumbling but whimpering, also a little as it picked, the, picked its way over the sharp grasses, it made off. And it's interesting that the chapter ends with it made off and it stops speaking about him as a human because he's acting as less than human. I know it's a long chapter, but C.S. Lewis is saying what I'm trying to say in such a more profound way. Uh, and the long and the gist of it is that this murderer received God's grace and it transformed him. The murderer knew that he had a need for forgiveness and he received it. The other guy actually was trying to cling to his rights and that's what left him on the outside looking in. Now, I talked about loving gifts Um, I also like giving gifts, and the more I've gotten older, the more I love giving gifts. And you give gifts to those people you love, and you love looking at how they receive them. Um, But to be honest, in my family, my wife buys all the gifts. Uh, Anybody else here? Their wife buys the gifts? Yeah, so I can't tell you how many times we go to, you know, family Christmas, a family birthday, and the person that we have given a gift to opens it, and I'm just as surprised as they are when they open it. I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. 
Uh, and there's probably a lot of husbands in the room that know exactly that fe- feeling. Your kid opens a present and you're like, oh, that's what we got them. That's cool. Um, and so my wife allows me to put the name on the gift. It's such a blessing. But that is actually the picture of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. This is the picture of forgiveness that C.S. Lewis is referring to in The Great Divorce. He's saying that God's forgiveness, we often think of receiving God's forgiveness as me getting a gift, but what we don't think about is that there's a gift sitting on every single person's lap in the whole universe. Whether you choose to forgive somebody or not doesn't mean, uh, doesn't have any bearing on whether they're forgiven or not, because God has chosen to forgive them. It's whether they receive God's forgiveness or not. But they can receive God's forgiveness and you still not forgive them. In fact, the whole invitation for the follower of Jesus when it comes to conflict and relationships and restoration is the invitation that Jesus gives us to put the name on the gift that he's giving. He says, I'm giving without without question, without limit, the gift of forgiveness to every single human being. And if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my child, if you're going to be my representative, I want you to. And you know what you get to do? You get to put your name on the gift with mine. And every act of forgiveness we step into as his image bearers is actually only re-gifting what Jesus has already gave them. In fact, we don't even do the forgiving. We just get to come along for the ride. But when we say to Jesus, I don't want to put my name on that gift, it's actually to our detriment because his forgiveness is available to them anyways. And so as we kind of close this morning, uh, the song we're going to sing actually talks about um, our need for Christ, our need for forgiveness. Because every time Scripture actually talks about forgiveness, the heart of the matter that it always comes back to is our capacity to forgive. When Jesus teaches us to pray, um, he even links them together at the, at the end. Pray like this. God forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those. In Matthew 18, he talks about the, this, this master and the servant. And the servant uh, is actually goes back in prison, not because he owed a debt, but, but because he wasn't really willing to re-gift the forgiveness that he received. And so we focus on our forgiveness. We actually focus on receiving. And as we focus on receiving, and we, we become aware of how much God has actually given us, how needy we are, how God didn't stop at justice, but he moved towards being a giver, not a taker and not a getter, but a giver. And we are the recipients of that. Then it's a joy for us to actually partner in him and giving that gift to other people. I want to invite you to stand. And I would like, I would like you uh, to picture in your mind, maybe there's a person that you've had a hard time forgiving. Someone that has maybe really wronged you and hurt you in a significant way. That every time you think of them, there's anger, there's bitterness. I want you to close your eyes just for a second as you think of that. And just... Who can think of a person like that? Can you put up your hand? Can anybody think of a person like that? Person where there's unforgiveness. And that's natural when we've been hurt by people. Now, in your mind's eye, I want you to picture that person holding a gift from Jesus and picture yourself holding a gift for Jesus. That Jesus is actually forgiving you both. And the question he's asking you is, do you want me to put your name on the gift for them too, or just mine? Do you want me to put your name on the gift to them too, or just mine? And before you answer that, think of the present that's sitting in your lap. So Father, we thank you that you give and you forgive. And Lord, we are different people and our entire stories have changed because of your grace and forgiveness towards us. Lord, we don't want to forfeit that. 
because of our lack of forgiveness for others. So Lord, would you transform our hearts as we receive, as we recognize our own need, as we recognize our need for your grace and mercy. Lord, would you allow us to re-gift that to others? Would you give us the courage to put our name on that present with yours? We thank you that you love all people. And it's because of that, Lord, that we're loved. But it's also because of that that you love our enemies. So would you teach us to love our enemies the way that you love us? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As a pastor, I'm aware of uh, so many stories of deep wounding and deep hurt. Uh, And please know when I talk about forgiveness, I don't even assume for a second uh, that I know personally what that means for you. Please know that I understand that uh, there are situations that are very, very difficult to forgive, to sign off on. And for many of us, forgiveness will have to be a process. Uh, And I don't even pretend to think that coming to church on a Sunday, uh, hearing a sermon and responding... uh, that that's enough to move you to a place of making that decision in a moment. Uh, but maybe you want to want to. And I think that's what Jesus is looking for, a want to want to. Maybe you're actually, you want to get there. You've seen what unforgiveness does in your heart. You've seen what it does in your life. You've, you know, last week we talked about uh, how there's a shalom party and you feel like you're not getting to be a part of it. And maybe it just starts with a, a want to want to. And I would encourage you to courageously step into that journey, to, to start moving in that direction. Uh, because forgiveness is supernatural. It comes from God ultimately. And so as we're transformed by his forgiveness, we just get to participate in him and what he's doing in the lives of other people. Uh, and so you actually don't have to muster it up and figure it all out yourself but you actually need to take the step towards opening your heart to the Spirit and what He wants to do in your heart in that situation. Let me pray for you. Um, Perhaps you want to take advantage of the prayer teams that are available at the end of service. We'd love to pray for you here. Uh, We we also have ministries uh, that can walk with you as you walk this out. And if you're interested in any of those, just uh, you can come chat with myself or uh, leave your name at the Welcome Center and we'd love to follow up with you. Father, we thank you. that you are generous. Uh, But Lord, I'm mindful, as we said, that there are individuals in this room who things have been taken from them. Things have been taken from them. And Lord, they don't know how to process that hurt, that woundingness, that woundedness, that the pain. Uh, Lord, it's hard to imagine what forgiveness even means. But Lord, I thank you that you are there with them and I pray that your spirit uh, would minister to them and to us. Lord, that we would sense the degree to which you love us, the degree of grace in which you give us, that you would give us the capacity, the supernatural capacity to re-image you to the world, even to those who have hurt us. Lord, we know it's only possible through you. So, Lord, I pray for courage to take those steps to walk this journey, to receive and to give forgiveness. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.